Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of A Colony Sprung from Hell, Daniel Barr. Daniel Barr, author of A Colony Sprung from Hell, Pittsburgh and the Struggle for Authority on the Western Pennsylvania Frontier. A Colony Sprung from Hell. Strong words. Well, that's a quote from uh, Colonel Henry Bouquet. And I thought it really kind of summarized uh, perceptions from a lot of the book is about the reactions of the local population to outside figures and outside, especially authority figures. And uh, I thought it really kind of summed up what the outside figures thought of this region. It becomes Pittsburgh and it's, you know, in its early formative period. Uh, Bouquet was a mercenary soldier, uh, was with General John Forbes during the French-Indian War, 1758, comes over eventually, uh, through, expels the French from Fort Duquesne. Forbes returns back to uh, Philadelphia, unfortunately, dies shortly after that. And it's Bouquet who's left here, literally on the ground here in Pittsburgh, to uh, kind of make sense of what, what do we do now. If you jump forward from that a few years, Fort Pitt's been built, and he's sitting in his quarters in Fort Pitt, and he really didn't like the frontier. And he writes long uh, letters to, uh, well, to one of his love interest and to friends back in Philadelphia, and he comments about, you know, kind of the, the loneliness and the despondency out here. Uh, he, there's another quote in the book where he talks about the, what he calls the eternal horror of the forest, just living out here on the edge of nowhere as far as he's concerned. Uh, but the title comes from uh, a commentary where he's talking about the small settlement that's starting to crop up around the fort, the people who are coming to live here, you know, what's going to become really the first manifestation of Pittsburgh. And he doesn't have a high regard for them. You know, he, he really, uh, he, they, they've caused him nothing but trouble over the previous year and a half. And he looks out and he, and he just is taking stock of things and he says, you know, this place is, a, the full quote is, he says, it's a colony sprung from hell for the scourge of mankind. <laughs> So <laughs> the start of Pittsburgh. Yes, yeah, that's that's the first assessment. And you know what, what's interesting is, you jump forward 20 years later. It's what I talk about in the introduction. And you have a Continental Army general, William Irvine, who doesn't use the same words, but he's sitting in this almost literally the same spot as Bouquet in Fort Pitt. You know, now you have a Continental general rather than a British general, and he's looking around. And he's just has the same impression. The, the inhabitants of this little settlement of Pittsburgh, which really hasn't grown that much, not the not the urban settlement at least. And he arrives at almost similar conclusions, you know, just a total disdain for these people. And it's all about their, re their relationship to these two as, as authority figures and to, to many others in the book. And it's, uh, that's really what the focus of the book is about. And I thought the title kind of summed that up. Plus, the publisher thought it was very catchy. <laughs> so. What would have attracted a settler to, to Pittsburgh at that time or Fort Pitt? Well, a lot of things, really, um, especially land, um, opportunity. Uh, most of the settlers who come here... Um, especially after the fort is built, uh, come here for land. I mean, that's, that's the main draw. So, uh, you have really have two groups. 
uh, that come into this area, one that comes across the Forbes Road from uh, usually out of Philadelphia or come up from Maryland, from Baltimore, and then come across the Forbes Road across Southern PA. Um, and those are people who, a lot of them are recent immigrants. Uh, there's a tremendous influx in the amount of Scotch-Irish, for example, or Scots-Irish, who come in in the 1760s and 1770s and right up through the early 1800s. And most of the eastern part of the colony is, or colony in the state of Pennsylvania is fairly well inhabited, so they come across the mountains to the only place they can find land. And most of them actually settle in the countryside around uh, what becomes Pittsburgh, especially over uh, from Pittsburgh towards what is now Greensburg, the Ligonier Valley, that area. But at the same time, you have a whole another group of people who are coming up out of Virginia. And they come up uh, over the come up the Potomac River to the headwaters and then through the mountains and down the Monongahela or Yakagani River, filling in wherever they can find you know, attractive land. Those people are usually, uh, not always, but they're more uh, people who've been here longer. They're old indentured servants. Um, they're the, kind of the landless poor class of Virginia. Uh, Virginia land ownership at that time was uh, almost the entire colony is owned by wealthy people. Um, you had you know, the most famous example of that would be a guy named Thomas Lord Fairfax who owned what today is basically the entire northern third of Virginia. One family owned it all. So people who uh, in Virginia who are poor, who have been working for these people, either, either you know, on indentures, on contracts, or just on a kind of a wage labor basis, if they want to ever become self-sufficient, they have to come over the mountains and they wind up coming here. Was the land free? Here? Well, that's the, that's the great rub of it. <laughs> it. That depends on who you would ask. If you, the settlers were here to tell you, they'd say, yeah, it's free because nobody's there to stop them. They're coming in and taking it. Legally, almost all the settlers, whether they come from Pennsylvania or they come from Virginia, are squatters. They have no legal um, rights to the land. They have no deeds. Or if they do have deeds, they are uh, suspicious deeds, I guess you would say, or deeds that are not universally recognized. They're contested. Um, so land's not necessarily free, but is a, there's a whole messy situation here over who really owns the land. And you've got a, uh, really a struggle um, over that. That's one of the central parts of, of this whole story is not only who's going to own the land, but who has the power to sell it, who has the power to settle it, who has the power to develop it. And you have eastern wealthy elites, both in Pennsylvania and Virginia, who both will claim the region that is now southwestern Pennsylvania for themselves. Um, you know, for Virginia, for example, uh, claims everything that is from Pittsburgh, south of the Ohio River, and up the Monongahela, that's all Virginia to them. They believe their colonial charter grants them that land, and they should be able to exercise political authority here. Same time, you have Pennsylvania believing that that's going to be part of Pennsylvania. The issue through this whole time period is, from the 1740s right up until 1785, really, is that no one's ever measured the border, western border of Pennsylvania. So no one's exactly sure whose colony this is. And because of that, neither colony can effectively claim it, develop county governments or civilian administrations. And so you have this mass of settlers who come in beginning in the 1760s, and there's no government. The, the British Army locally isn't the government? No, the British Army is the only authority figure here. But the problem for the British Army in the 1760s is they don't have the manpower or the resolve to be able to manage this situation. They ha they're in control basically in the fort and the little settlement that crops up around it. But the, within a few miles of the fort, when you get up the rivers or out into the valleys and the little streams and creeks, there's no control. And, and British, British, British authority, really, the Army's authority is much more of kind of an, an I describe it as an ad hoc situation. They're, they're a reactionary authority. They don't put in place laws to stabilize society or they don't set up rules to, you know, to, 
to make sure that everything is, is secure. They react to the problems that the settlers bring to them. And that's what Bouquet was really talking about when he calls it a colony sprung from hell, is that there's so many problems that he has to deal with that it's just, he laments over and over that there's no civilian government. There's no, nobody here to be doing this stuff and that he has to deal with it. But it's much more you know, reactionary. When something bad happens, then they make a law. They don't make laws to try to prevent or, you know, or control society before the fact. Well, you're right about land speculators in your book. And how would somebody in Philadelphia or Virginia have been a land speculator? How do you, how do you buy land and counter make well, the money off of it? Each, each of the two colonies had a different system. And that's where the lack of a border becomes such a, a, a problem out here because no one's sure which system should prevail because they're not sure which colony it's, it is or is going to be part of. Um, in Virginia, the system was a little more straightforward. It goes all the way back to the earliest colonial days where the land acquisition was established under what they called the headright system. So you, an individual could be granted 50 acres of land. Uh, wealthy individuals could, be, could basically buy up the headrights of other colonists who came over from England. This is very common in Virginia. It's really how the landed class is formed. You have poor people who want to emigrate to Virginia in the early 1600s, but cannot afford to pay the cost of the passage on the ship. So you have wealthy investors, is what they really are. They will pay for large numbers of people to come over here. In exchange, they obtain their head right, their 50 acres. So a wealthy investor could obtain thousands and thousands of acres. And those people who come over, they, they become indentured servants. They sign away their labor for a number of years, and when their labor is up, then they're free. But they don't own any land they don't get the because land. they gave it up. Uh, to the investor, so they gradually move west, and that's a process that replicates it. Now, most of those, of course, big landowners in Virginia go into tobacco production. But when we jump way forward into the 1720s and 1730s, the worldwide mar market for tobacco is going down. The costs is going up. The revenues are decreasing. So in Virginia, as well as uh, some other, well, Virginia more, I guess, than, than the Carolinas, uh, these wealthy landowners decide there's much more money to be made by becoming land speculators, what we think of as, as real estate investors. So they still grow tobacco, but rather than putting money back into land, buy more land for more tobacco, they buy land to survey it, mark it off, and sell it. George Washington was one of those. Oh, he was he? a major, major land speculator. Uh, yeah, he had uh, obtained title in various ways to tens of thousands of acres stretching from now to what is now West Virginia right up into the region of Pittsburgh, especially along the, the Yakagani River where he had a, his personal surveyor, William Crawford, lived along the Yakagani River and surveyed uh, lands for Washington extensively during did, this time. Did the Penn family still think they owned all the land in yep. Pennsylvania? Yep. So yep. they would have owned around here if it was Pennsylvania? Right. Yes, exactly. The, the Penn family actually, you know, the difference in Virginia was um, you could become, an as an individual, you could pursue land. In Pennsylvania, when you go back to the earliest policies there, you could not. William Penn, when he founded the colony, put in place a system whereby the proprietor, the, he's the owner of the entire colony, or his designated agents were the only ones who could buy land. And a private individual coming into Pennsylvania couldn't buy land. Uh, not, not from the Indians. You, you could buy it from the Penn family. But only they controlled lands. He set that system up as a way to make money for himself. And, you know, as you get into getting into the 1700s, that policy gradually or that right to control land gradually is taken away or through, through negotiations, really political conflicts, the Pennsylvania Assembly, the elected assembly in the colony, gains control over land, uh, land acquisition. But it's still a very tightly regimented, tightly controlled process. It's much more difficult in Pennsylvania to amass large holdings of land than it is in Virginia. It's, it's almost, it's, the system is set up really to prevent that. You know, to not let any one individual obtain massive amounts of land. 
and any unincorporated lands, uh, lands that are considered to be Indian lands that haven't been formally purchased by the colony, the first right for that is retained by the proprietor. So yeah, that the, the children of William Penn, his sons and his grandsons by this time, would have had first claim on any new land. And the way it worked by the time we get to the 1750s and 1760s is uh, when land would be ceded or, or bought from the Indians, the Penns had the right to what were called tenths. They would send out a surveyor and they would get 10% of whatever that new land was would become theirs. And they got the first pick, the first crack. So when uh, Pittsburgh or this region, southwestern Pennsylvania, is formally ceded to Pennsylvania, that's not till 1768 with the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, the Penns send out a surveyor and they lay off a big, what they call a proprietary manor. All of what is now Pittsburgh was their proprietary manor. They took the best lands for themselves first. Now the revolution removes them. You know, the Divestiture Act during the revolution dissolves the Penn family of all their land holdings in Pennsylvania. But yeah, they, they still thought, thought this was very much theirs. And that's a central part of, especially in the early part of the book where you have politicians in Pennsylvania, mostly the Penn family themselves or their governors, and then governors in Virginia wrestling in the halls of power, mostly through letters and litigation, over trying to get legal recognition, both of them appealing to the British government to recognize one or the other as the rightful possessors of uh, the region around the forks of the Ohio River. Was there ever any shooting between the Pennsylvania settlers and Virginia settlers? Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, now, in the early days, it's mostly a political battle. Um, but by the time you get to the era of the revolution, especially, and, uh, well, let me back up. When you go back to a very important treaty called the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768, which in the British eyes dissolves the Indian title or the Indian claim to the region around Pittsburgh. They believe the Indians have ceded it to them. They've, they've agreed to sell it and give it up. That allows for the first time legalized settlement to open here, where you're still gonna have a lot of people who come and just live on the land. They don't have a deed for it. They're still squatters. But you have people now who can legally come and legally buy and obtain land. And when you do that, you have these two factions that develop around here. One is very much a Virginia faction. Um, they tend to inhabit the region that we today would think of as Fayette County and Washington County, kind of south of Pittsburgh. And then to the east of Pittsburgh, and what's Westmoreland County, what that time was created as a much larger Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, that's where Pennsylvanians come. And when the revolution uh, breaks out, both new states, Pennsylvania and Virginia, create county governments here that overlap one another. So they're in direct conflict with one another. They don't recognize each other's authority. And in the first two years of the American Revolution, for example, uh, we're, we're busy declaring independence on the eastern seaboard and trying to fight British, you know, the British. Uh, you have Pennsylvanians and Virginians raising militia groups around here, and their first actions are against each other. Um, and it's, it's limited. It's not open full-scale war, but it's a series of episodes. It's a lot of arrests. Leading figures on either side are arrests, but there's, there's shooting, there's killing. You know, it, it, they, they use the revolution more as a context to try to get rid of each other because there's no direct British threat, at least in the beginning. You know, for them, the problem is, if you're in Pennsylvania, the problem is the Virginians. So we'll, lead, we'll go after them. Both sides accuse each other of being loyalists. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much an internal local power struggle. Were the British not around the, the, well, the Pittsburgh British, area during the Revolutionary War? Not at the start. The British in 1772 abandoned all their western outposts, especially Fort Pitt. Uh, it's a cost-cutting move. Um, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, whatever you want to refer to it as, leaves the British Empire with a massive debt uh, from that war. And that's part, not the only reason, part of what leads to all those familiar taxes that lead you know, indirectly or directly to the American Revolution. But out here on the frontier, what, uh, what they decide is Fort Pitt was, was arguably the largest fort the British ever built in North America. 
maintenance of the fort was extremely expensive. Um, in the years after 1758, and well, after 1763 especially, over the next 10 years or so, the fort largely serves just as a gathering place for Indian conferences, which are another added expense because you're expected to feed and house and provide for large numbers of Indians. And the British decide over time that it's just too much money. And in 1772, they arrive at the conclusion that we're going to withdraw from the frontier. So they close Fort Pitt. The last British officer was a guy named Edmund Stone. He literally will shut the door and he sells the fort to a couple of locals. Uh, he literally, uh, it, it's, it's questionable whether or not it was a legal sale or if he just was pocketing some money. <laughs> but he sells it to a couple of locals who then begin to dis dissemble or take it apart parts of the fort, especially the, the brick walls and the mortar to build houses in town. So yeah, they're not here after 1772. When a revolution starts, there's no British presence around. And for most of the people, even when they do get into more of a war during the revolutionary years, it's, it's an Indian war more than a, a direct war against the British. There'll be no redcoats around here. There's no fighting the redcoats. It's very much a, a struggle between settlers and, and Indian groups who are allied with the British out of Ohio. I want to back up a little further. You mentioned the Treaty of Fort Stanwix. And prior to that, there was the Proclamation of 1763 right. that said no settlement right. in what's now western Pennsylvania. Right. The French-Indian War, basically the book's divided into thirds. The first part of the book is really about the coming of the French-Indian War and how this Pennsylvania-Virginia contest for who's going to have the force of the Ohio contributes to starting that war. Especially, if, you know, I kinda, I'm kind of a little bit harder on the Virginians, I guess you would say. They're more aggressive about this. But when, when you say that, the Virginians could use uh, force and the Pennsylvanians could not because they were Quakers? Well, the Pennsylvanians, the Pennsylvanians didn't have an army. They're the only colony among the original 13 that has no militia. They don't have a militia bill before the French Indian War, between the, before the 1750s, largely because of the, the Quaker principles on which it's founded. And even though Quakers became a, a minority in the colony almost within the first year of Pennsylvania's existence, they controlled the government until 1756. The so-called, what became known as the Quaker Party, um, or the, the simplest explanation is the Quakers controlled a majority of the seats in the voting assembly. So they initiated legislation and they consistently blocked any militia bill. Now the proprietors who appointed the governor, he was not elected, they were fine with that up until the 1750s because if you're going to raise militia then you have to pay for them with public funds and Penn family lands were tax free. So when the war breaks out, yeah, they don't have an army, they don't have troops, and then they squabble with each other, the assembly and the Penn, Penn family governor, over who's going to pay for raising an army because the assembly wants to tax the Penn's lands, the Penn's say you're not going to tax our lands. So yeah, they're really in a, not in a very good position to do anything, and that leaves this opening for Virginia to come running up here and try to you know, secure the forks of the Ohio. I mean, most people are familiar with Fort Duquesne and the French coming down, but not as many people are familiar with it. the first fort, if you want to call it that, it's more of a little log building, but the first fort built on the forks of the Ohio River is built by Virginians before the French come. The French tear it down, drive the Virginians out, and then they build Fort Duquesne there. But to go back to that question about the proclamation of 1763, you have this kind of intercolonial competition that sets off this war, and it's a very, very expensive war, and the British government takes stock of this thing and the lady becomes this massive global war, and as it's winding down in the early 1760s, the British government looks at North America and decides, mostly for financial reasons or economic reasons, that we need to control or kind of keep an eye on our colonists, not just let them spread west. We don't need another big, big war, especially an Indian war. And so the, they issue this proclamation, which you know, it's not perfect equivalent, basically draws a line down the Appalachian Mountains and says the colonists will stay east of the mountains. There will be no settlement west of the mountains 
without permission. Um, How'd that work out? Well, it, nobody listened. <laughs> that was the big problem. Um, you know, it, it was interesting it, it, in that the proclamation uh, is, is really kind of a misunderstood edict. It did not create an Indian preserve, or it did not reserve the lands west of the mountains for Indians, which is the way it's often portrayed, and which is the way some colonists thought it did. What it did was basically put the brakes on. It was a, the British government, it, when you read the language of it, it's clear that it's a temporary measure because it says you're not going to go west without our permission, without our you know, approval. It's basically the British trying to take control of westward colonial expansion and manage it. Now they fail miserably at that because the proclamation has no teeth. There's no enforcement clause. Uh, it has one of my favorite things in any document I've ever read is it just, all it says is if you don't listen, if you're a colonist and you go across the mountain, then you will face uh, pain, basically. <laughs> it says you will, pace, fa uh, you will, you will uh, face basically discipline at our pleasure, but it's not clear what's going to happen to you. And then the British troops that are left here to garrison these, these few frontier forts on the western side of the mountains, they don't have anywhere near the manpower or the logistical strength to keep people from coming across the mountains. I want to read this one thing. This is a couple years later. Uh, the Pennsylvania government's solution was surprisingly harsh. In February 1768, Penn issued a proclamation that required all people illegally settled west of the Appalachian Mountains to remove themselves by the end of May or suffer death without benefit of clergy. Yep. That's tough. That is tough. But that's desperation, too, by the British. Um, because what happens in that five-year period between the proclamation and Pennsylvania's own uh, ban against Western settlement is you have increasing pressure being brought by British military commanders on the governor of Pennsylvania, on the governor of Virginia, to stop these people from coming across the mountains because the British can't do it. You know, the British governor, uh, command, British commander-in-chief in the mid-1760s is Thomas Gage. He's stationed in New York, and later he'll be the guy who goes to Boston, you know, when he's put up there for the revolutionary uh, stuff. But Gage... Uh, is constantly receiving reports from the area around Pittsburgh about all these settlers that are coming in, and the Indians are getting angry and frustrated. In fact, 1763, you know, it's, it actually happens before the proclamation. They go to war about this, and the British don't want to see this happen again. And so Gage tries to tell his commanders at Fort Pitt, well, drive them off. And they do, you know, especially when they go up the Monongahela River to a place called Redstone Creek. They burn, you know, huts and cabins and drive the people off, and as soon as the soldiers go back to to Fort Pitt, the people come back and they rebuild. And so they put all the, the, the British military puts a ton of pressure on the governments of Virginia and Pennsylvania. You stop them because they can't and they know it. And so the Penn family, after a lot of pressure from the British Army and from the home administration, comes out with this you know, over-the-top proclamation that says, none of you can settle west of the mountains and the penalty's death. But it does nothing either because it's just like the proclamation of 1763, it's a paper tiger. They can't enforce it and they can't really stop these people. They just don't have the manpower to do it. I want to read your words again. Whether they came for land or trade, most migrants avoided Pittsburgh during the proclamation era. Settling, settling close to Pittsburgh, the seat of British authority in the region carried the risk that the army might militarily enforce the terms of the proclamation by forcing settlers from their homes. As a result, for several years after 1763, Pittsburgh was occupied primarily by transient Indian traders and military personnel. So if you wanted a squat, you, you just didn't go anywhere nope. within sight of the fort. No, you stayed away from the forks of the Ohio River and you settled up, up river. You know, especially if you're Virginians, you're up, uh, up where the forks of the, the, the uh, Yakagani River 
uh, comes into Monongahaler, up that, down, you know, on the, geographically on a map, we're talking about south, down across what is now the West Virginia border, up through Fayette and Washington County. Pennsylvanians didn't really come any further than the Ligonier Valley. You know, Pittsburgh is, is very isolated during this time. While uh, the British military estimates are in the tens of thousands of people who come and settle this region in the 1760s, and the population of Pittsburgh itself never gets above a few hundred because that's the only seat of authority and that's the only place you really had to worry about it if you were a settler. If you go to Pittsburgh, the army might question why you're here. They might potentially try to, to do something or enforce the law, but they have no power beyond that very limited little scope. If you were a settler here or a squatter here, did you trade with, with Indians or with, with back east or with Virginia or were you pretty much kind of self-sufficient? Well, you did both. Um, you know, this is a, it's a complicated story, and one of the, the ironies about all this is the British Army is here. You have the Proclamation of 1763, and they're supposed to block unlicensed settlement. In fact, the only thing the Proclamation says is that you can, uh, former soldiers in the British Army, as a reward for their service, can be granted land west of the mountains. But the Army posts, especially places like Pittsburgh and Fort Ligonier and some of the forts up the Allegheny River, are so isolated from the east that they are dependent on civilians for supplies, especially food. And so you have the army kind of make exceptions. Bouquet is the one who starts this whole policy. He makes exceptions to allow these people to come in and settle right around the fort as long as they hunt and provide the, the garrison with meat, they grow food, they can trade with, he gives them, you know, he allows them gradually to start to trade with the Indians, even though Pennsylvania especially tries to control that to make sure only people with licenses can trade, and they try to centralize everything at a, at a trade uh, office in Pittsburgh. But the Army, because of its needs, flouts its own laws or its own restrictions and kind of makes exceptions. It's not an even policy uh, because of, of what they have to do to survive. So when people come in, uh, yeah, you can come into Pittsburgh if you're bringing something to trade with the Army and you're reasonably safe. Uh, it's just when you're causing problems that they're going to, your attention, if, as long as you're really not causing problems for the, for the Army, they kind of look the other way. <laughs> we really haven't talked about the Indians around here. How many were there around here and what, what were the tribes? Well, there's a number of different tribes. The, the most important one through this era was the Delawares, or Lenapes as they called themselves. But um, this area or in the early 1700s is largely I wouldn't call it empty, but there's very limited native uh, inhabitants here. The, place, the, the region had been inhabited by Indians before that, but they had largely moved away, and it had kind of become a hunting area, really. But in the 1720s, 1730s, 1740s, you start to get more people moving in, especially Delaware-speaking peoples who move across the mountains from eastern Pennsylvania and settle really from what is the uh, fork, forks of the Ohio River all the way up the Allegheny River and the Shenango River, the Beaver River, you know, fill that area in north of Pittsburgh. Now, when I say fill in, there's, there's villages dotted all over the place. You also have some Shawnees who will come in along the southern uh, area of Pittsburgh, and they tend to, there's a few villages around Pittsburgh, but most of those will move across what is now the West Virginia Panhandle into Ohio. And then you have another group called the Mingos, a kind of a separatist people from the Iroquois Confederacy up north who will also come down and settle, especially around what's now Wheeling, West Virginia. But you have a, a fairly vibrant native presence by the time you get to the 1750s. Now, the numbers are hard to tell. Um, we're not, even uh, by, there's only really two colonial estimates that you can go off of, and you're only talking maybe a total of 6,000, 4 to 6,000 total native people living around here. Um, but the Delawares especially who inhabit the Allegheny River Valley uh, will be the most important player kind of through this entire drama. 
because they're a split from the traditional Delaware Indian nation, if, who was in, uh, of course, the original inhabitants along the Delaware River that wet, met William Penn. The ones who come across the mountains have broken off from that original or traditional polity. They're still over in eastern Pennsylvania. And these people who come over here uh, kind of get this determination that they're not ever going to move again. And they adopt a number of different policies to try to make sure they stay on the land. So the Delawares are the ones in the book who play the, the most direct role for me. Um, it starts in the French Indian War with fighting to try to maintain their position on the land. Uh, all the way up by the time you get to the Revolution, they have a, a Delaware chief named White Eyes, and the tr what's called the Treaty of Pittsburgh in 1778 has worked out a deal uh, with uh, negotiators from the Continental Congress for the Delawares to become the 14th American state. It's right in the, right in the treaty. They said they will become the heads of an Indian state. And that has a nice little fine print. You know, it says, all this if Congress approves. So that treaty is signed. The Delawares ally themselves with the Americans against the British allied Indians, thinking they're going to be, they're going to join. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be separate. They're not trying to fight us. They're going to become us. And then it goes to Congress, of course, and then the politicians in Congress table it. They never actually vote on it. Uh, there's an unfortunate affair where it's a very confused, uh, unclear affair where White Eyes uh, is killed by what's called Fort Lawrence, probably by Virginia militia. Um, and that set, just sets the whole thing unraveling. And within, within a year, the Delawares switch sides, and then they're the enemy now. They're on the British side. How are relations with the Indians uh, early on, between the, when the settlers and squatters first started to arrive? Tense. Um, you know, like I said, the, most of the Indians who come over the mountains are refugees. They're fleeing from pressures in the east, mostly pressures on their land. Um, the Delawares especially have, have developed kind of a bitter taste in their mouth for Pennsylvania um, because of what was called the walking purchase. A lot of them are also fleeing away from um, a, a very shadowy control uh, that was placed on them by the Iroquois Confederacy in New York. In the 17, well, it started in the late 17th century, but by the time you get into the early 1700s, many of the Eastern uh, American colonies had entered into a relationship called the Covenant Chain, in which they recognized the Iroquois Confederacy of New York as being the overlords of all Eastern Indians. And it was a system that worked really well for both the Iroquois and the, the colonial governments because if the colonial government in Pennsylvania, for example, wanted the Delawares to sell land, the Delawares would say no, or there was some controversy there, they'd bring in the Iroquois as this kind of artificial arbiter. And the Iroquois supposedly had conquered all of these other Indians at some point, so they were their masters. But it's never really been demonstrated that that was true of the Delawares. And when the, these Delawares who come west, I call them the Western Delawares to differentiate them from the ones who stay on the other side of the mountains, they very clearly don't recognize the Iroquois as their authority. And they come here with the idea that they're going to start over, that this is going to be a new land for them, their place where they're not going to have to deal with the Iroquois interfering, they're not going to have to deal with population pressure. So when traders are the first ones really to come over the mountains. That relationship is okay because the Delawares are you know, re receptive of that. They need the trade or they want the trade, but it's when land jobbers, as they called them at the time, or surveyors start to show up, such as the old people working for the Ohio Company of Virginia in the late 1740s, early 1750s, that's where the Indians start to protest and say, no, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to come over here. And there's, there's a very tense relationship um, especially in the early 1750s. It may have led to war, we're not sure, because into this whole mix comes the French. You know, as the Indians are moving into this region, Pennsylvanians are starting to come over here, Virginians are starting to look at the force of the Ohio River. That draws the interest of the French, who claim all of the Ohio uh, watershed is theirs. 
they have no colonists here, but it's a part of their trading network, their trading empire, a very valuable commercial empire. They don't want anybody coming in here and interfering with this, especially not British colonists because they're able to trade with the Indians. Uh, the, the goods that the British uh, colonists are able to provide the Indians are of a better quality and they're cheaper than French goods. So they're a major, major competitor or potential competitor for the French. So, you know, on multiple occasions, first in 1748 and then right up to uh, 1753, they send a gradually increasing military presence into the region and that's tips the whole thing up. You know, the French come down, especially in 1753, they start to build those line of forts and the whole French-Indian War, you know, begins. Was there much uh, fighting around here during the French-Indian War that involved French or was it Indians against the... It's settlers. mostly Indians. I mean, you have the, the early stage battles. Um, you know, when the French, the French come down the Allegheny River, they invade Western, what, be, what becomes Western Pennsylvania in 1753, and they start to build from Fort Presque Isle up in what is now Erie. They gradually come down and uh, start to build a line of four forts. Now, it's not until the spring of 1754 that they arrive at the forks of the Ohio River where they'll build their, their largest structure, Fort Duquesne, which is still relatively small, but the biggest one the French will build. And the Virginians have already started to build a fort there. It's really a private, it's a, it's, a, it's a merger of a private and a provincial fort. It's really the Ohio Company of Virginia's fort, a land company. But the governor of Virginia is a member of the company, so he's arrayed public resources behind the company's endeavor there. But the French drive that out. Now, that's done without a fight. But that then leads into the very familiar stuff with George Washington being sent forth by Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia. He comes up and you have the, eventually have the fight at Fort Necessity, which is Virginians against a mixed group of French and Indians. Um, but then after that, you know, the French largely confine themselves or, or limit themselves to maintaining their line of forts, to garrisoning those forts. And most of the fighting over the next four years is, is Indians who are supplied with the French, allied with the French. They do most of the, the actual fighting. And when you get to the end of the process, at least in this area, with the fall of Fort Duquesne in 1758, that again is, is done without a fight. The French abandon the fort because they're out of supplies, out of resources, and they're down to a, uh, just really a small number of men in the fort against a 6,000-man British and colonial army that's advancing against them. So they, uh, I always liken it to something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. They put a bunch of dynamite in the one corner of the fort and run the thing out the front, and they blow it up, and they go back up the Allegheny River. So no, no, the answer is no. There's not a whole lot of fighting involving the French directly. It's mostly French-allied Indians. And it's really, a, most of the Indians who do the fighting around here are Delawares or Shawnees. And they don't like the French either, really. But it, for them, it's kind of the, a choice between, I don't want to really call it the lesser of two evils, but it's a difficult choice. Do you ally with the French, who have made no land claims? The French, all the French want from the Indians is you have to trade with us. Or do you ally with these English-American colonists who very clearly are after land? And the choice most of the Indians make is, you know, is we're going to ally with the French. The interesting thing, though, is the war in, in Pennsylvania, the French-Indian War in Pennsylvania, stops with what's called the 1758 Treaty of Easton. In that treaty, it's a precursor to the Proclamation of 1763 because the treaty says no one's allowed to settle west of the Appalachian Mountains. What the Indians want and what they get is a guarantee that their land that they've moved here over the mountains to is going to be preserved. Now, so the Indians thought that the British were going to leave after the French Indian War? They did, because the British told them they were going to leave, uh, which was not true. But the British, yeah, the, uh, John Forbes, who conducts the final campaign against Fort Duquesne, his, one of his main military objectives is not to have to fight the Indians. You know, he goes back to Edward Braddock three years ago and says, I'm not going to make that mistake. Braddock 
alienated the Indians. They actually come to Braddock and say, we'll help you drive the French out, because the Indians didn't want the French here either. But Braddock, you know, doesn't think he needs the Indians. He, he, drive, you know, he sends them away. Forbes says, I'm not going to fight the French and the Indians. I'm going to get the Indians out of the fight. So he orders the governors of the colonies, and as a major general in the British Army, he actually ranks politically ahead of any colonial governor. He's above them. So he orders them to do whatever you got to do, make peace with the Indians. So uh, long story short with all that is there's this long series of negotiations that goes on for months during the summer and fall of 1758. Part of that involves an emissary, a diplomat, that Forbes sends over to deal or talk to these Delaware and Shawnee Indians around here. And they ask him, they say, you know, all your talk about peace sounds good, but why is this big army coming? You know, if you want peace, why are you sending this huge army over here? And he assures them that it's just here to drive the French out. And as soon as the French are gone, the army will go back over the mountains. Well, the French are driven out, they leave, and the army doesn't go back over the mountains. In fact, well, you know, they leave a, a smaller force here to kind of hold the point of the Ohio River the, or the force of the Ohio River through the winter of 1758 to 1759. But then it's not long after that they start building Fort Pitt, which, as I mentioned earlier, becomes the largest colonial fortification they build in North America. It's pretty clear to the Indians they're not going anywhere, and it's only a short time from there to 1763 when you have what's lar the larger conflict known as Pontiac's Rebellion, where the Indians attack again and try to drive them out of that fort and try to drive them out of this region altogether. When did the Indian raids on the settlers start? After Braddock's defeat. Yeah, after, seven, after Braddock is defeated in, in uh, 1755, most of the Indians uh, who lived in this region kind of stayed out of that fight. You know, older accounts of Braddock's defeat thought that Delawares and Shawnees must have been there with the, with the French to, de to defeat Braddock's army. But that's not really the case. The French, when they came down, brought a large number of Great Lakes Indians who had been traditionally allied with the French for long periods of time came with them. And those were the Indians that participated in that so-called Battle of the Monongahela in 1755 where Braddock is spectacularly defeated. And it's after that that the local Indians were kind of sitting on the fence. You know, they don't really like the French. They're not real happy with what's going on with these English colonists. That's when they have to make that decision. Do we side with the French? Do we side with the British? And they side with the French. And they then begin this wide-scale series of raids that goes on for the next three and a half years. Um, and in some cases pushes the frontiers of Pennsylvania back 100 or more miles. There's refuge, you know, it's, it's, we don't think of this in our history. There are refugee camps that are opened up outside of in, uh, the, basically the Philadelphia metro area for people who have been pushed and fled off the frontiers. What happened to the people who stayed? And, and once the British, the British did leave Fort Pitt, we talked about that earlier. What yeah, happened eventually. to the people around yeah. here when the British finally left? Well, or had the fighting settled down? No, the, the, the fighting that I'm referring to there only went on until 1758. When, when Forbes comes across and Fort Duquesne is abandoned, the Indians make peace because they get what they want at that time. Now, as I said, the British don't leave the fort. They, they don't leave the area. They start to build Fort Pitt. The Indians gradually lose patience with them. They come to, the Indians come to Pittsburgh all the time and say, hey, you, you said you were going to leave, but you're not leaving. And the British, you know, Bouquet is centrally involved in this. He says this, he tells them this, he tries to placate them. Meanwhile, he's writing letters back to his superiors that said, they seem to think we promised to leave. I never said we were going to leave, even though he does say he's going to leave. So the British are a bit just disingenuous about it. They have no intention of abandoning that strategic position. Now, 1763, you get another flare-up, you know, the Pontiac's War. But for the local Indians, the Delawares and the Shawnees around here, that, they lose that war. Is that when Fort Pitt was put under siege? Yes, that's when Fort Pitt is, is put under siege. The original first... Uh, 
manifestation of Pittsburgh, the one that Bouquet calls a colony sprung from hell, is destroyed at that point. Everything that was down uh, along the rivers to the point from the fort, uh, he, he burns it because that was called the lower town. He burns it because, well, one, it was, a, it was a ramshackle place. That's really what he talks about when he calls it a colony sprung from hell. It was a collection of, of Indian traders and basically taverns and uh, brothels and just a kind of a chaotic, you know, collection of humanity there. And it just causes him all kinds of problems with his soldiers who go there, and he doesn't want them to go there, and it breaks down military discipline, makes it hard for him to do his job. So when he's actually in Philadelphia, but his... Uh, right-hand man uh, who's in charge of the fort when, uh, Pontiac's re when, when the Pontiac's Rebellion starts and Pittsburgh's put under siege, he burns all that. Uh, ostensibly, the army says that's to prevent the enemy from getting into musket range of the fort walls, but they're only too happy to get rid of that. And then the, well, the upper town, which is now uh, above, you know, it's where most of downtown is now, from the, the bluff where Duquesne University is all the way over to the river, that was you know, the more genteel area. They had the King's Garden was there, and you had uh, Bouquet's house was actually outside of the fort walls because it was nicer it was there. The Indians destroy all that. They don't destroy that part. You know, but that's the first manifestation of Pittsburgh is actually destroyed. The first town is destroyed after that. And when, uh, when the fighting's over and the Indians have lost, that's where you have the first surveyor come in who actually starts to lay out the first street grids, you know, which are not too far from you know, where this building sits right now. In fact, we're, we're on it, actually. We're at the Post-Gazette building at the yep. point, just yep. for reference. Yeah. Well, did, um, what was it like? I mean, did all the local people living around here run into the fort? And, and they did. Uh, a, lot lot? a lot left. It depended on your proximity. During Pontiac's Rebellion, uh, the f there were five, over 500 refugees who flooded into the fort. And, and it was surrounded one, by Indians? Yes. It's the one, uh, the one time where the fort's size actually worked out well. Uh, because it was 18 acres, about 18 acres inside its outer works. Most of that was open parade ground, but that allowed you to bring in that many people. Now, if you weren't close enough to get to the relative safety of the fort, a lot of them just fled. Um, you know, we, have, we, have, we don't have specific numbers, but we have vague commentaries. Not, not really vague, but they're, they're just imprecise commentaries from people on the scene at the time who talk about people fleeing over the mountains or fleeing back to the east and how this entire region is now depopulated. Now, does that mean every single person left? Probably not. But large segments of the population, fearing for their safety, did flee. And they wound up somewhere back east until the fighting was over, and then probably came back. The fighting during, during 1763, uh, there are raids into the surrounding settlements, uh, but most of the, the focal point of the Indians is on the fort itself. They recognize that as being the symbol of British power. That's the main sticking point. You said you were going to go back over the mountains. You didn't. This is where you're at. Um, lacking cannon or artillery, they, they don't really you know, invest it, but they just try to starve the, the British out, which ultimately fails. You said a little bit earlier that uh, there were no redcoats here during the Revolutionary War, but you, you write here, to the population of the western Pennsylvania frontier, the American Revolution was an Indian war. Mm -hmm. uh, who was on what side? I mean, did diff different tribes take different sides, or was it the settlers against the Indians? Initially, uh, when the Revolution comes about, the British as part of their policy for winning the revolution. Uh, and this doesn't develop, this isn't instantly, this isn't really until 1777. Um, originally what the British think when the, when the larger revolution starts out is that the Americans are basically, the revolutionaries are just a small group and, you know, one good blow will end this thing. You know, they learn after Battle of Bunker Hill, for example, that's not really going to be what it is, and they launched a massive uh, campaign culminating in the seven, late summer of 1776 with the capture of New York City. 
But what they decide as part of their larger war effort is they want to open up a second front or multiple second fronts if they can. So the British who have manpower problems, when you look at the large American Revolution from the British side, they have horrible manpower problems in this war because what they're trying to fight essentially is what we today would call counterinsurgency war. And they don't have the manpower to do it. It's not a popular war at home. They're relying on mostly an all-volunteer army. So they wind up doing a host of things from hiring German mercenaries, Hessians, to in Virginia they try to incite slave rebellions, and out on the frontier they recruit the Indians. So especially early 1777, the British hold meetings with various Indian groups out of Fort Detroit, which they control, and they offer them incentives to attack the frontiers. And some Indians immediately say yes, like the Shawnees who have uh, kind of have this lingering resentment, especially towards Virginia. They have a bad taste in their mouth from previous years, uh, a, a war called Dunmore's War that they lost against the Virginians, and they feel they've been robbed of their lands by these colonists. So they accept you know, the call to war, at least most Shawnees do. Another group called the Wyandots, who are dependent on the British for trade. They're based on the western end of Lake Erie. They're not really around here, but they need the British to trade, so the British kind of leverage economic concessions to get them to go to war. But the Delawares, who fight so hard during the French Indian War and emerge basically victorious, only to then turn around and lose during Pontiac's Rebellion, they don't want to fight. They've now kind of changed their idea, and they try, they try to stay neutral. In fact, the Delawares, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, they try to join the Americans you know, a little bit later on. But ultimately, they too will wind up on the British side. And then lastly, you have the Senecas out of what is western New York will come down the Allegheny River there on the British side. So most, most all of the Indians do wind up one way or another on the British side, but not, not immediately. And that's who will do the fighting against the settlers around Pittsburgh. You won't have British redcoats you know, raging through here. It's, it's all Indians. Was there any Continental Army on the other side, or was it just the not local? Initially. Not they initially. Were, they were militias, or what? Yeah, they were militias initially. Um, when you have the, the, the Pennsylvania counties and the Virginia counties formed that overlap each other, part of the reason for, for actually delineating a county is so that you can then have militia musters because they're all organized by county. So you'd have a county militia lieutenant who would then call out the militia, all the men of eligible age, form them, drill them. So yeah, they, that's, they will start up like that. Now, they wind up, like I said, squabbling with each other at the start. The Continental Congress, the, the infant Continental Congress, when they look over here at the frontier, they're mostly just worried about Indian affairs. So initially, they don't send any troops, any generals. They send an Indian agent, a guy named George Morgan, who comes to Pittsburgh. And his job is to try to keep the Indians out of the fight. You know, and he gradually won't be able to do that as more and more start to join the British cause. But it's Morgan who looks around and says, you know, we need troops. We need troops and we need an officer, a general, someone here to control these people, to, you know, to run this defense or this whole place is going to go up. And that's when they'll finally, two years into the revolution, the Continental Congress will start to send the first of what will become four generals, commanding generals, who are going to come to Pittsburgh. A guy named Edward Hand is first. He's really got a tough assignment because he comes into this area where Pennsylvanians and Virginians have been kind of going at each other and have been jockeying for political power with one another for now almost 15 years. And the first thing they want from him is, tell us whose colony it is. You know, where's the border? Settle this dispute. And Morgan writes a letter to him when he comes in and says, don't take either side. No matter what you do, don't take sides, because if you do, it's going to backfire on you. So Hand doesn't do that. And then the Congress really makes his job a lot differently, uh, more difficult, because when Edward Hand comes, he's not given any continental troops. He's expected to use the militia. And this sets off what becomes a, a central characteristic of the war during the Revolution, in which the commander, whether it's Hand or any of the three who come after him, his successors, argue with the county militia leaders 
over the role of the militia. Because the generals usually want the militia to be an offensive force. They want to take them into the Ohio country and attack the, the enemy Indians. The militia leaders don't want to leave their homes. And it starts this real this, this struggle for who's got the power, who's, make, who's calling the shots, who has the authority. And it really becomes very, very contentious where um, the continental officers will issue orders and edicts and the county militia leaders simply will ignore them. They won't listen to them or they'll decide to listen to the ones they like. And then you have campaigns against the Indians that are almost, it'd be comical if they weren't military, where one side will launch its own campaign independent of the chain of command and another will, will do it. If, you know, if the Virginians have a little bit of success and the Pennsylvanians, well, we've got to, we can't let them get a march on us. We have to attack too. But it's just a, it's a sordid, chaotic affair and the ultimate sad end of the story is it renders the ability to defend the region almost uh, irrelevant, almost impossible. Who's your favorite character that you came across in this book? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. It's probably, there's a couple, really. Um, I guess it, on You the, can pick more than one. You know, on the British side, I like Bouquet. Um, he's, a, he's really a, a very interesting commentator. You know, when you really start to read in his letters, and he's, he's, easy, he's easier to get a grasp of because a lot of his writings have been preserved. There's a, a big six-volume set of his letters. Uh, and beyond that, there's, there's a whole other smaller series that's older. So there's just a ton of stuff that you, you can go through that's, that he wrote that's still around. But I like his eloquence. You know, I liked, obviously like the, the quote of the book, but he's got a ton of them in there. Um, so I, I, he's an interesting figure. I like him. On the Indian side of things, I like... Uh, the Delaware leader, White Eyes, he has kind of a unique vision. You know, we always tend to think of Indians as wanting to fight against the Americans and protect their lands. And here's a guy who arrives at the conclusion, well, if you can't beat him, join him. So he comes up with a, a different idea. And, it, and, you know, when you go beyond even what I have in the book, White Eyes, he doesn't just want to become a, an Indian state. He wants his people to become Americans. He asks for teachers and people to teach them how to farm. And he really wants to transform their entire culture. Something that he's not the only one to do this. And, you know, in another 25 years, the Cherokees will try to do the same more or less the same thing down south. Unfortunately, it won't work out well for them either. Uh, but ultimately, I think my favorite guy is a rascal, and it's this guy named George Krogan. Um, because he's just, he's all through the book. He's there at the beginning, he's there almost until the end, and he's just a guy who's all about himself. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, a, he's a scoundrel, but he's kind of an irresistible scoundrel. Is he a he, trader? He starts as an Indian trader, but his real, you know, what really makes him tick is land. He wants to become a big landed aristocrat. He, he gets a, a grant from the Iroquois for 200,000 acres of land right along the Ohio River at the forks of the Ohio River. And he spends 40 years trying to get anybody, any colonial British American authority government to validate that, to, to recognize the legality of it. And he's never able to do that. But he winds up on he, he's a guy who's he's not on the Pennsylvania side, he's not on the Virginia side, he's not on the British side, he's not on the American side, he's on all of them. He just switches back and forth, he's everywhere. And it's all about self-interest. And he becomes kind of the quintessential example of the, the level to which self-interest drove a lot of what was going on on the frontier. But everybody was kind of in it for themselves, and there's nobody who fits that mold or, or exemplifies that more than George Krogan. And unfortunately, in the end, he gets nothing. You know, in the end, he, he winds up with, with nothing. He never gets his land grant. In 1777, he moves back to Philadelphia because locals accuse him of being a loyalist. And he's in his later years at that time, he just, just gives up. But after all that time, struggling and manipulating, and you know, he, he, finally just, uh, you know, he finally just gives up the game and, and goes back. Wears a lot of hats, too. He starts as a trader. He's an Indian agent. 
he's a, a land speculator, he's a judge on, you know, he's, he, like I said, he's everywhere. He's kind of irresistible. Could you explain what Vandalia was? Yeah, the Vandalia was, was a, basically an attempt uh, to create a 14th colony. Um, you have a lot of people interested in the forks of the Ohio River and then down the Ohio River, especially to the land south of the Ohio River into what is now a lot of West Virginia. And the uncertain nature of the border between Pennsylvania and Virginia and where that was going, to, which colony that land was going to fall into, led to a lot of people developing different schemes, basically, to try to, to get a grasp on those lands. One of those became what was called the Vandalia Group. They come out of a group of basically Indian settlers, Krogan's involved in this too, uh, of Indian traders rather, who petition uh, the British government basically for uh, compensation for losses during the French Indian War. They call themselves the suffering traders. They, are, uh, they, they lose tons of money during the war when, when the Indians, who were their customers, start to attack now. And they, they lose their inventories, their business is obviously disrupted because you can't not trading with Indians who are attacking you now. And so they put together a, a basically what we think of as a lobbyist group. They send Krogan and others over to London and they petition originally for compensation. Now out of that comes a string of events or a string of, of different manifestations of this group. Uh, but one of their manifestations becomes what's called the Vandalia Group. And what they do is they want the government, okay, don't pay us in cash, create a new colony, okay? It's not, Vandalia wasn't going to be Pennsylvania, it wasn't going to be Virginia. They said, okay, if you can't figure it out or nobody knows who it is, then just don't give it to either one of them, create a new colony. And the principal beneficiaries of that new colony would be these individuals who were going to become the primary landowners. They would be the proprietors of this colony, the owners of it. And they stood to make a ton of money if that colony came into existence. Now the British government actually went so far as to authorize it. They granted it. It was, it was going to happen. And then at the last minute there's a snag because the, Brit the, the Solicitor General's office had some concerns over the method by which land, uh, property taxes, what were called quit rents, would be collected in the colony. That's the, that's the motivation for the British government here is, okay, well, we'll create this new colony and it will open up a massive new area of taxable land. And the only tax this time is what we would call, would think of as a property tax, and the British government gets a cut of that. But the Solicitor General's office was concerned about how are you going to collect this? Are we really going to, is the empire, you know, is the imperial government really going to see money out of this venture? And it stalled the thing until the revolution started. And when the revolution started, then Vandalia just disappears. You know? You, you conclude your book, and we only have a couple minutes left, it's saying what endured uh, is an, a, was among the settlers around southwestern Pennsylvania and around Pittsburgh was an attachment to local autonomy and personal liberty, albeit one that was founded on the settlers' distrust of distant authority and hatred of Indians. Now, when it was finally decided that this was going to be part of Pennsylvania, the southwestern Pittsburgh area, how did Pennsylvania go about trying to establish themselves here? How that, did that go Well, when, they, when Pennsylvania and Virginia finally settled the boundary issue in 1780, the, the uh, way in which Pennsylvania extended its authority, its legitimacy, was to create new counties. Westmoreland County at that time actually encompassed everything until you ran into the border of Pennsylvania. You know, so it would have been what is now Allegheny and Washington and Fayette, the whole southwestern corner of the state. Well, once, the col once they worked out the border with Virginia, Pennsylvania started to create new, new counties. They created 
Washington. They created Fayette County, which is named after the Marquis de Lafayette. They created Allegheny County. And as they did that, they ran into a whole host of problems with people who were Virginians, who didn't want to be living under Pennsylvania authority. And so part of what comes out of this kind of a political culture that I try to outline in this region is that these people have been out here for so long on their own with no civilian government or with no uncontested civilian government. I mean, when you have two civilian governments both trying to exercise authority, you might as well have none because neither one really is legitimate. So these people have learned to do things on their own. They've learned to take matters into their own hands. And as now you finally have the advancement of or the erection of civilian institutions and courts and tax collectors and militia roles, it was fraught with a lot of difficulty because these people had developed their own understandings of how things were going to be done. And a lot of it was based on the idea that governments, especially to what to them was far away governments over the mountains in Philadelphia or Williamsburg or wherever, didn't care about them. You know, you have, a, you have almost a reverse story. You know, in the, in the, the traditional narrative of the American Revolution, we talk about uh, Americans rebelling about, against what they perceived to be as a tyrannical government in London who was stepping on their rights. What you have for these people living on the upside of the mountains is they're upset because there is no government. There's, they don't think they're being protected, especially from Indians who have been for off and on now for almost 40 years, they've been fighting Indians and losing for the most part. And so they are very upset about lack, what they want is stability, they want security, and they don't trust government. They don't think government has their best interests in heart because what the only contact with any kind of government authority they've had has either been a, rep a repressive kind, military authority who's reacting to, to them, or these wealthy schemers who are trying to take the land up. Um, so they don't, they don't have a, a, a very amicable relationship with government. They have this distrust is, is the simplest word, and that's what I use in the book, this distrust, this kind of fear of local government. And they develop very much their own kind of inward-looking parochial worldview in which if government comes in and says, we're going to do this, and that's what the locals want, they'll accept it. But if government comes in and says, we're going to do this, this, or that, and it's not what the locals want, they're not going to accept it. They're going to rebel against it. And the end of the book is the Whiskey Rebellion. And I don't, a lot of, you know, a lot of books have been written on the Whiskey Rebellion as their standalone books, and that's fine, because you can study it that way. But sometimes they paint it as its own separate manifestation, a, a unique thing. And I think it's actually something that's tied into all this stuff that becomes, comes before it. I don't think you can separate it out. Well, there's a lot in your book that we will not get time to talk about because we're out of time. But you're a teacher? I am. I teach at Robert Morris University. History? History, yes. History professor. Uh, our guest has been Daniel Barr. He is the author of this book, A Colony Sprung from Hell, Pittsburgh and the Struggle for Authority on the Western Frontier. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.